0: Welcome to Sights and Sounds, a series of podcasts presented by the Gotham Center for New York City History for Open House New York Weekend. In this episode, Don Hawkins talks about Federal Hall on Wall Street, the site of New York's first city hall, the nation's first sub-treasury, and most famously, the place where George Washington took the oath as America's first president. Hawkins, considered by many the dean of Washington, D.C.'s architectural history, is working on a book about Pierre Charles L'Enfant, who redesigned the building now known as federal hall national monument he's also an urban planner who's played a role in more than 250 building projects throughout the nation's capital for more podcasts like this and for more gotham center programming visit us at gothamcenter.org and sign up to our mailing list thanks for listening federal hall it's a building that no longer exists but its memory is worth evoking because it was where the present government of the united states was created 230 years ago. It was here that the weak and ineffective government under the Articles of Confederation handed over its powers to the new constitutional government in a prescribed series of actions culminating in senators, representatives, and a president taking their oaths of office. In three long sessions spread over 20 months, The first federal Congress created the agencies, the courts, and the presidency necessary for an operable government under the Constitution. The stage upon which this great drama played out was only an upgraded and enlarged 90-year-old building, but it was rendered both correct and grand by an extraordinary Frenchman. Now, as you stand at the head of Broad Street on the south side of Wall Street, looking north in the 21st century, you're looking at Nassau Street running past the old temple-style customs building constructed in the 1830s. Federal Hall used to be right in front of you here, blocking half of Wall Street and most of Nassau Street. Federal Hall was about the same width as the present Customs House but its front was centered on Broad Street for greatest visual effect as you came up the hill. This is where, 36 years after taking New Amsterdam from the Dutch, the British government had constructed a city hall for New York back in 1700. It was placed with its back to the old wall that had defined the north edge of the settlement for many years. As Wall Street was developed, The houses on its north side were set back about 20 feet from the front of City Hall, contributing to its dominance of the neighborhood. The building was two stories high and had a hipped roof. It had a seven bay front, two windows, then three arches, then two windows. The three arches at the center and the second floor they supported were set back 12 feet from the faces of the flanking wings both front and back, making a dumbbell-shaped plan. The central space on the first floor, reached through the arcades, was a continuation of the public space of the street. The city's common council met in a 30 by 40 foot chamber on the second floor above this open space. It was an all-purpose civic building where, along with the Common Council, the colonial courts sat, citizens gathered to express their views, a library was established, and it was where the city's fire engines were kept on the first floor, while criminals and debtors were kept in the attic. By the 1760s, the building's condition began to require a lot of maintenance work, so the Common Council decided to do some major repairs in one campaign. Then they began to expand and upgrade the project, calling for sheets of copper from England for the new roof that they then decided to raise in order to add a third story to the building. They screened the recesses at front and rear with rows of four columns at each story and a central arch above in the new attic story. New second floor balconies were supported by the colonnades. After Parliament passed the Stamp Act in 1764, it was in this dressed-up city hall that the very first assembly of representatives of the colonies was convened for the purpose of resisting parliamentary rule. The Stamp Act Congress was the first of the many reactions to perceived oppressions by Parliament over the ten years leading up to the battles at Lexington and Concord that opened the Revolutionary War. The gathering set a pattern followed by the colonies and then the states up to and through the revolution and the creation of the government under the Constitution, representatives seeking practical levels of agreement and cooperation. This first one overreached. The attendees decided upon a strategy of non-importation, but not all of their constituents were enthusiastic about the difficulties that entailed. And the first attempt at resistance to the mother country's government petered out when several colonies refused to participate in it. New York City Hall became the region's center of increasingly frequent protest meetings and activities, and at times it was its armory. The Revolutionary War was a longer and more trying experience in New York than any other American city, due to its role as British headquarters its extended period of enemy occupation, its two major fires, and the exile of many of its patriotic citizens. City Hall was outside the broad swaths of destruction of both fires. The building served the British as a jail for captured American officers for some time, apparently the least vile of the many buildings and vessels given over to that function for the duration of the war. Nathan Hale spent part of his time as a prisoner in City Hall jail before being hanged for spying by the British. If he actually said, I regret that I have but one life to give for my country, he composed the statement in New York City Hall. The Continental Congress under the Articles of Confederation met in half a dozen towns and cities during the Revolution. After the peace, the Congress moved at the invitation of the Common Council from its extremely undersized and inconvenient residence in Trenton, New Jersey, to convene at New York's City Hall. From 1785 to 1788, it shared City Hall with the Common Council and the Library and the Fire Engines. The stocks, the pillory, the leg irons, the manacles, the iron cage, and other devices connected with law enforcement in the 18th century had been part of the equipment of City Hall Jail from its earliest days, but they were all relocated to the main jail, a mile north, when Congress moved in. From 1785 to 1788, the period when the inadequacies of the Articles of Confederation became increasingly problematic, The Congress met sporadically, sometimes lacking a quorum, rarely passing a law, always aware of its weakness and often reminded of its failures. When the Convention of State Representatives in Philadelphia produced a Constitution in 1787, the old Congress that had no hand in creating it set about planning to implement it. That was a challenge they accepted without hesitation. Permanent seat of government, a minimalist description, was the term used in discussing where Congress would ultimately sit. But a temporary seat was needed until it made a decision on the permanent seat. That was a sticking point. During the war, the permanent location of the government had often been discussed in Congress with neither urgency nor resolution, but now a decision became critical because the process of changing governments required that they fix upon a particular place and convene there at a particular time. New Yorkers felt they had the advantage in the competition for a capital because of Congress's current residence in City Hall. But the potential advantages of a city's playing host to the federal government were also recognized by other cities and states, and the competition for the honor became fierce. The Common Council had offered the permanent use of its city hall to the Constitutional Congress. But it was the Continental Congress that had to decide, and they put off until they had almost run out of time to repair and enlarge the building before the new Congress convened in it by March 4, 1789. Finally, in September of 1788, the old Congress made the decision, allowing only six months for modifying and enlarging the building. That was an extremely tight schedule for the completion of a major construction project that would require an experienced designer and manager to apply every possible skill to accomplish. There were very few of those in post-revolutionary America, but New York State's most fervent and influential Federalist, Alexander Hamilton, absolutely knew who it should be. He had an old friend from the war that he was convinced could do the job. Pierre-Charles L'Enfant was a French painter who had sailed to America to fight in the cause of liberty. Among the first Frenchmen to arrive in America, by the time Lafayette arrived, the Americanized lieutenant was calling himself Peter L'Enfant. The playwright Caron de Beaumarchais, who had created a false front business to cover up his activities in support of the American Revolution... Had sent him along in an artillery company whose commander had no use for him, considering L'Enfant a dilettante among professional soldiers. In fact, L'Enfant's training in France as a landscape and battle painter had exposed him to a great deal of useful information and developed in him abilities that turned out to be extremely useful to his army and to his adopted country. After his commander died in an ego-induced accident during the Battle of the Brandywine, L'Enfant was ordered by Congress to go up and meet newly arrived General Friedrich von Steuben in Boston and escort him to Valley Forge, Pennsylvania, where the American forces were frozen into a miserable winter encampment. In an almost miraculously short time, von Steuben retrained the ragged collection of survivors of mostly lost battles and remade it into an army capable of fighting and defeating the British army on its own terms. L'Enfant helped to develop and draw the first American manual of arms under von Steuben. Among his closest companions at that time were Hamilton and Lafayette, who, with Generals Knox and von Steuben, were the founders of the Society of the Cincinnati, a post-war brotherhood of veteran revolutionary officers. L'Enfant designed the Society's elaborate medal. In Philadelphia, L'Enfant designed and produced a brilliant celebration of the birth of an heir to the French throne, a diplomatic triumph that Washington enjoyed. L'Enfant appears to have become a popular designer in New York after the war, where he and Hamilton remained close enough friends to casually borrow money from each other over the years. L'Enfant helped Hamilton at the time of his struggles with Governor Clinton over New York's ratification of the Constitution, designing and producing a parade and a huge banquet to demonstrate its popular support. The great feature of the parade was a float shaped like a half-scale frigate named Hamilton. By September 1788, L'Enfant had proven himself to be the most creative and effective designer and planner in America. So no one registered surprise when Hamilton recommended him for the job of upgrading and expanding the old city hall to accommodate the first federal Congress. The old common council room was large enough for the Senate So L'Enfant's basic idea was to improve the front of the building's architectural ornamentation in detail and construct a large new addition at the rear of the existing building to accommodate the House of Representatives. In managing the modification and expansion of the building, L'Enfant had to consider the distribution of his resources over time. Because the work on the front of the building was largely cosmetic, He could get his finished craftsmen started on that at the same time he was initiating the crude foundation work that the new rear building would need. By the time the new walls and floors and roofs had been completed, the fine craftsmen were progressing and ready to apply L'Enfant's modified European language to the building. For its descriptive value, I'm going to quote a highly edited contemporary article on Federal Hall that appeared in the Massachusetts magazine of June 1789 with an engraved elevation of the building based on a drawing by the architect Charles Bullfinch. I quote, The citizens of New York have enlarged and repaired their city hall and made it a convenient and elegant structure worthy of the respectable body for whose use it is designed. Four massy pillars in the center support four Doric columns and a pediment on the front. The frieze is ingeniously divided to admit 13 stars in the metapes. These, with the American Eagle and other insignia in the pediment, and the tablets over the windows filled with 13 arrows and olive branches united, mark it as a building set apart for national purposes. After entering between the piers, we find a plainly finished square room flagged with stone to which the citizens have free access. From this, we enter the vestibule in the center of the building, which leads to the floor of the representative's room straight ahead, or through arches on each side by a public staircase on the left and by a private one on the right to the Senate chamber and lobbies. This vestibule is very lofty and well-finished. The low part is of a rustic pattern which supports a handsome iron gallery. The upper half is in a lighter style and is finished with a skylight of about 12 by 18 feet, which is decorated with a profusion of ornament in the richest taste. Passing into the representative's room, we find a spacious and elegant apartment, 61 feet deep, 58 wide, and 46 feet high. This room is of an octangular form. The windows are large and placed 16 feet from the floor. All below them is finished with plain wainscot and four fireplaces. Above these, a number of ionic columns and pilasters with their proper entablature, are very judiciously disposed and give great elegance. In the panels between the big windows, trophies are carved, and the letters U.S. in a cipher surrounded with laurel. The speaker's chair is opposite the great door and raised by several steps. The chairs for the members are arranged semicircularly in two rows in front of the speaker. Each member has his separate chair and desk. There are two galleries which front the speaker. That below projects 15 feet, the upper one is not so large and is intended to be at the disposal of the members for accommodation of their friends. Besides these galleries, there is a space on the floor confined by a bar where the public are admitted. The curtains and chairs in this room are of light blue damask. It is intended to place a Statue of Liberty over the speaker's chair and trophies above each mantelpiece. After ascending the stairs on the left of the vestibule, we reach a lobby 19 by 48 feet, finished with Tuscan pilasters. This communicates with the Iron Gallery before mentioned, and leads at one end to the galleries of the Representative's Room, and at the other to an anteroom to the Senate. The Senate chamber itself is 40 feet long, 30 feet wide, and 20 high, with an arched ceiling. It is decorated with pilasters, etc., which are not of any regular order. The proportions are light and graceful. The capitals are of a fanciful kind, the invention of Major L'Enfant. The Senate chamber has three windows in front, opening onto a gallery 12 feet deep, guarded with an elegant iron railing. In this gallery, our illustrious president, attended by the Senate and House of Representatives, took his oath of office in the face of heaven and in presence of a large concourse of people. We cannot close our description without observing that great praise is due to Major L'Enfant, the architect who has so accommodated the additions to the old parts and so judiciously altered what he saw wrong, that he has produced a building uniform and consistent throughout and has added to great elegance every convenience that could be desired. The old Continental Congress having determined to help with the creation of the new government in August seventeen eighty eight had drawn up a calendar of requisite actions beginning with the selection of electors by the states in September and ending with convening of Congress and inauguration of the president on March 4th, 1789. But not enough members had arrived in New York by the stipulated date. There was considerable apprehension among the first arriving representatives and senators that they may never achieve a quorum, and so never create a government. Not until six weeks later, on April 6th, Did the Senate achieve a quorum so that it could open and count the votes of the electors? And only then could it send messengers to George Washington in Virginia and John Adams in Massachusetts to request their presence in New York to lead the government that they were about to make. In the small-scale environment of Manhattan's narrow streets, the City Hall would have dominated the locale from its earliest construction and then its effect would have been enhanced by the addition of its third story at mid-century. By the time L'Enfant had finished refashioning its massing and proportions, it must have been overwhelming by comparison with its residential-scale neighbors. And the intensity of the atmosphere, with the massive inaugural crowd compressed into narrow streets, must have been as exhilarating as anything of the sort they'd ever experienced. The planning for his inauguration had begun well before Washington was declared the winner of the presidency. L'Enfant had done his best to make Federal Hall a dramatic stage set for the ceremony they planned. On April thirtieth, Washington was joined by lesser dignitaries who escorted him a quarter mile from his residence to Federal Hall and then to the Senate chamber where he was officially recognized. Then he and some of the senators and congressmen and Chancellor Livingston of New York stepped out onto the front balcony. When Washington appeared, the crowd's enthusiasm made it impossible to hear what was being said, but the simple significant ceremony that made him the first president of the United States was easily understood by all. When Washington drew a paper from his pocket— and read an address to all of the people of the United States. Almost nobody could hear what he said, but they were each convinced that he shared their sentiments, so it didn't matter. His upright reputation and appearance were enough for this moment in history. The official party then made its way to St. Paul's Church down the street for a Thanksgiving ceremony, followed by innumerable Thanksgiving feasts throughout the day and throughout the city. As soon as Congress had convened, it was obvious that more conference and committee rooms were needed. So L'Enfant designed an addition along the east side of the House of Representatives that contained the new rooms. A bonus feature of this addition was that its flat roof could be reached from the second floor, providing a convenient private walkway for senators and representatives to stroll and converse and negotiate. The Congress settled in and adjusted to the building, while craftsmen were still working on some of the interior decorations and the cupola on the roof. Debate on some of the most significant and precedent-setting legislation in the history of the nation was crafted in a building that was under some degree of construction disturbance throughout its useful life. Most of the employees of the old government continued to work up to and after the transfer of power, but their responsibilities and operations were redefined by Congress, as it shaped the various agencies to align with the principles of the Constitution. That meant there was never a power vacuum or an experience deficit in the new government. Two major issues appeared to be insoluble by the third session of Congress in the spring of 1790. The first question was whether the federal government should assume the Revolutionary War debts of the separate states. The second question was where the permanent seat of government should be located. Every congressional attempt at discussion of either of these questions ended in acrimony and fears of dissolution of the Union throughout the first two sessions. New York had the advantage of possession of their current meeting place, but New York was pretty far north of the middle of the country, so its only supporters, as to location, were New England states. Finally, Hamilton, Jefferson, and Madison worked out a trade-off because they recognized that there was a potential balance of forces in the two issues. The northern states had generally accrued higher levels of debt during the war, so they were in favor of Assumption. The southern states didn't want to help pay northern debts, and they didn't want the capital to be too far north of them. The Grand Compromise of 1790 gave Assumption to the northern states and a capital on the Potomac River to the southern states. Congress adjourned in New York in August 1790 to reconvene in Philadelphia in December, where it would reside for ten years while a new permanent seat of government was being constructed near Georgetown, Maryland. The government would then relocate for the final time to the city that became Washington, D.C. on December 1, 1800. That meant that Federal Hall would lose its major tenant, the United States government. The city fathers of New York had gambled that the money invested in Federal Hall would reap benefits for the city for years to come. Now the cost of the building for the federal benefit had risen to five times its original budget, $65,000, with 13000 still outstanding. The federal government had never taken responsibility for any aspect of the building they had used for two years and were now abandoning. Under pressure to pay its debts, the Common Council authorized a lottery to raise funds for paying off that final $13,000 debt, a humiliating expedient compared with the expectations of only a few years earlier. Forsaken by the tenant for whom it had been built, The oversized city hall reabsorbed the common council and all its former tenants except the jail. But it was much too large for any, even theatrical uses, that were found for it. Within a few years of its alteration, Federal Hall began to show signs of instability. Its cupola was pretty unsubstantial and may have been too heavy for the roof, or the old problem of a leaky roof may have rotted the substructure away. In any case, the birthplace of our national government was a ruinous hulk before it was 20 years old. The city sold the building for scrap in 1812 to clear the lot. L'Enfant had been offered a city lot as payment for his work on Federal Hall. He disdained the insultingly inadequate payment, but accepted a low cash payment when he was heavily in debt many years later. Federal Hall was at the center of one of the most significant events in world history. It served its purpose for two years, housing Congress as it shaped itself and the other institutions and processes that underlie the success of the United States. Then it went out of existence when that had been accomplished. Thanks for listening to this episode of Sights and Sounds. Be sure to check out the rest of our podcasts at gothamcenter.org and sign up to our mailing list to find out about other programming here at the Gotham Center for New York City History.